Well, um, I hope you guys are enjoying the beautiful weather. It feels like summer is finally here. And yesterday morning I got up and the sun was shining, so I decided I needed to wash off the last 10 months uh, from my truck. And so I went out and washed my truck. And my wife came out and said, oh man, I should wash my car because it's dirty. And I said, hey, I'll make you a deal. If you wash your car, I'll help you. And then I'll dry it for you. Like that was my offer. Because I had this really cool idea. I didn't want to try it out on my truck, but um, I was willing to try it on a car. So I think I shared with you back at Easter, I got a, uh, it's a, it's a leaf blower, but it blows at 175 miles an hour. And I was just thinking, this thing would be sweet. And so we washed the car and then I went in and I uh, rubbed up the leaf blower and she, she tried to sneakily kind of uh, videotape me from inside the garage. But I'm just telling you guys, this thing works. It's like completely awesome. So anyways, if uh, you need your car dried, I'm your guy. Now, I tell you that because actually on Thursday, Christy and I are celebrating our 32nd wedding anniversary. And uh, yeah. <laughs> She'll wave at me, but she's not standing up. Um, and you know, I was thinking this week about uh, kind of the evolution of relationships. And so for those of you who are married or those of you who are kind of in, in the process getting there, you, you know what I'm talking about. There's kind of a progression uh, for relationships that are healthy and that are, are moving and growing. And that is a lot of times when relationships start dating relationships. And when we first get married, a lot of times it's just about us, right? It's about me and the other person and, and getting to know them. And there's a lot of needs you have and there's a lot of hopes you have. But a lot of it's about you and it's about them and it's just about the two of you. And this is why a lot of times when dating relationships start, there's a lot of tension. Some of you may have experienced that with your friends and other people because it's suddenly like they don't exist anymore. It's just the two of you and you just spend hours gazing into each other's eyes and the whole world fades away. And, and then after a while, after you, you know, learn how to love and relate and a lot of times then we begin to make room in our relational world for other people, right? That's what a healthy relationship does. And for my wife and I, I know that eventually became, you know, kind of welcoming in to a greater degree our families. Uh, we live here in the Northwest. Uh, my wife's family is in the Northwest. There's a lot of them, and they love to get together a lot. In fact, next week, we're going to go spend a week at the beach with her entire family. We're talking many, many, many people in one house together for a week, and we've been doing this, I think, 20 three, 24 years we've done this without missing. And even now there's a couple of the uh, nieces uh, that live out of the area. Our daughter's one and, and another niece's one and they both fly in. If you're not in the area, you're obligated. You signed a contract. You fly back to the Northwest and you attend it with us. And so and I kind of thought about how we went through that, that part of our relationship. And there, there came a time for Christy and I where we wanted to add to our family. And many of you have, have been there. You can relate to it. And so we wanted to have uh, a child or to have children. And my wife became pregnant. And then we began to, uh, you know, kind of prepare our, our house, prepare our lives to welcome our child. So there was a lot of prayer. I remember with our first child, lots of prayer, lots of planning. There was, you know, making space in the house for the coming child. There was b budgeting and, and kind of, you know, working Oh, through all the um, steps of denial about buying a minivan. Um, there was reading books and there was you know, talking with dads and getting to know them and you know, how do you parent and all that stuff. And then there was the actual welcoming, the physical welcoming of each child into the world. And I remember all three of ours and everyone was very distinct. Like I remember when, when Chris was born and just kind of being there. There's a, there's a very, for those of you who are parents, you know what I mean? There's, it's a very spiritual, in fact, I would say one of the singular most spiritual experiences of my life was when our children were born. There was something so 
awesome, spiritually speaking. So unbelievable. So, something so worshipful about the birth of a child. I remember holding this child. I remember thinking, you know, God, what have we done? And, and you know, look at, and then I remember like packing everything up. Those of your parents, remember the first child and you pack everything up and you put him in the child carrier and then I thought to myself, are they actually going to let us take him home? Like, are they going to let us take this child out of this hospital? We have no idea what we're doing. But I remember when Chris was born, that, that feeling, I remember when Nick was born and our, our doctor said, pretty sure you're having a girl and we weren't so convinced. But anyways, when he was born, um, there was a lot of joy. There was a lot of laughter. I just remember with Nick, a lot of joy when he was born because he was our second child. So we had a all figured out. It was all going to be easy and just being really happy. And then we went through a couple of years of uh, just really extreme chronic illness with our first child and our third child came along. And so it was a long, difficult stretch for us. And um, we decided we weren't going to, we didn't want to know if we're having a boy or a girl. And uh, we had a girl and we both kind of suspected it, but we weren't, weren't exactly sure. And so when, when Abigail was born, uh, I named her, you know, Abigail means her father rejoices. And there was so much rejoicing and happiness. And the, our boys who were two and four were so excited to have um, a sister. And I remember taking the boys out uh, and my wife was determined because I think Abby was due on Christmas Eve. My wife was determined to have that child and be home by Christmas Eve, which we were. So uh, there was a lot of discussion in our family. Our, our second born was two, and we had a four-year-old, so we were talking a lot about Jesus because this is, this is Christmas time, talking a lot about Jesus, and Nick always called Jesus Baby G. And I remember like we brought Abby home on Christmas Eve and brought her through the front door, and they'd put her in a big stocking, right, Christmas stocking, and we walked in the house, and the boys looked at her, and their eyes got really big, and Nick said, is that Baby G? And Abby... <laughs> Abby loved the, the kind of divinity of that for a while. She enjoyed that. But um, every one of our children, we welcomed into our family as God's sovereign gift to us. God made all of the choices involved. We didn't choose whether they were having a boy and a girl. We didn't choose the kind of personality that they would have. We didn't make those choices. We didn't welcome our children into our home on a probationary period. We, you know, we didn't say, hey, well, we'll see how it goes for the first 16 years, and then you know, we'll kind of decide at that point. We didn't, we didn't say, hey, well, if you perform well enough, We'll let you stay in our family. I mean, think about this. Our children had done nothing, performed nothing, accomplished nothing. Um, not, they hadn't done anything to earn their way into our family. We just welcomed them in as they were. We didn't say, hey, well, we'll see what your IQ is like when you're 15. We'll see what you look like or if you're good enough or, you know, if you have a good personality type for the rest of us or we'll see how many friends you have on Facebook or, or you know, what kind of degrees you get. We just welcomed our children into our family as they were. In Romans 15, 7, it makes a, a, a parallel for us who are Christians. And it tells us this. Therefore welcome, I'll explain this kind of a, it's an unwieldy translation here. Therefore welcome slash accept one another as Christ has welcomed slash accepted you for the glory of God. He's speaking to those of us who are believers and what we do with other believers that come into our lives. Because you may have noticed that God saves other people and brings them into the family without your input. 
He doesn't ask you if you like them. He doesn't ask you how you feel about them. He just brings them into the family of God. Now, this word welcome or accept is the Greek word proselambano. And, it, and here's, it has the idea of to, to take something to oneself, to admit something at, with friendship or hospitality, or to receive something. And so uh, I think the ESV, if you have that uh, English version, it, it reads as welcome. The NIV, the New American Standard, if you're into that kind of thing, has the word accept. When I went to Nicaragua, I was doing some teaching in this passage. And I decided in the end that if you're teaching this, you've got to use both words because they're both so integral to what it is that Paul's trying to teach us here. To welcome is to accept. To, set, to accept is to welcome. And I'll, I'll kind of lay that out for you. But here's the big idea I want to give you uh, today. Is that in the same way that God welcomed us into his family, for the same way that he welcomed you into his family with all your issues and all your sins and all your imperfections, so we are to welcome other believers into our relational world, into the family of God. We are to accept others as God accepts us. He accepts us by his grace. And that's how we are to welcome others into the family of God. So I want to unpack this a little bit in Romans 15, 7. And the first thing I want to bring up, out is this, that God has called us to be those who welcome our spiritual family into our world. And I want to give you a little context because sometimes we, we have a way of maybe romanticizing uh, the first church and what it was like back then. And we imagine it was so much different than today when in fact it was a lot like today. Now today there are a lot of things that divide believers. And as a pastor, I have to be very, very careful about what I talk about from up here because my goal generally is to teach you the word of God and do everything I can not to make it too difficult for you. But sometimes I, I, we need to face some of this stuff head on because we live in a world that is very divided and the church is increasingly becoming divided as the issues of the world make its way into the church. So what are some of the things that divide believers today? Well, there's a lot of things. I would say one of them is politics. I would say 25 years ago, um, as a pastor, I saw very little um, division in the church amongst politics because most believers in this church probably voted the same way. That's not true today. And you can bring up politics in a church and very quickly get some very heated discussions going on. Uh, some other things, immigration. There's one, I, I, in fact, in the last week, I've talked with people who have said, you know, we should close the borders and no one should be allowed into this country whatsoever. Talked to other people, said we shouldn't have any borders and we should just welcome everyone into the country. We have people in this room right here who take both sides. Things that can divide the body of Christ. Economics have a lot of different views about economics and, and how that should work in our country. We have, different very, uh, we have very different views in this room about worship music. I have very different ideas. Some people say we should only sing songs that are written by guys that are dead, right? They should be that old. We have other people say we shouldn't sing any song that wasn't written in the last 15 minutes because it's not fresh. Again, put people around a table in this room and you will find that these are things that can divide us. Denominationalism is a big one. Maybe not so much here, but in circles that I run in, I know people that will fight that will get heated and argue with each other about whether or not your church belongs to the right denomination or, or preaching methods. I have friends that will argue and divide over baptism. Should we baptize at, you know, uh, when they're infants? Should we baptize when they're older? Should we, should we dunk? Should we sprinkle? Should we use a fire hose? How do we, how do, we do that? People will uh, divide over that. LGBTQ issues, again, lots of different opinions in the church today, a lot of division in the church about this. The early church 
was no different. In the early church, there were many things that could have, and in fact, did divide them. Dietary issues, uh, menu was one of those. So most Christians, back in this passage you're looking at, most Christians were from a Jewish background. And as a, as a Jew, they had many dietary rules that would be difficult for us to understand today. But for instance, they would have been raised in a culture where they were forbidden from eating certain foods, certain meats in particular, or even methods of cooking meat. And so they would not be allowed to eat that, that meat. And there were rules against it. You could get in a lot of trouble. There was another issue for Christians, and that was this thing called meat sacrifice to idols. So the way that you would often get your meat back then was you would go to a butcher shop, and when you would get your meat, but you didn't know kind of the, the background of that meat. And oftentimes what would happen is people would take an animal sacrifice to a, a pagan temple of a pagan religion, and they would offer that animal as sacrifice. And then what the priest would do is they would, they would take part of the animal and they would cook it, they would, they would burn it up as an offering, and they would give the rest of it to a butcher in town. And that butcher would take and butcher it up and sell it to you. And so this would be meat that had been offered to false gods, to false idols. Some Christians were really worried that that would be the case, and so they just simply didn't eat meat at all. And the people who ate meat looked down on the people who didn't, and the people who didn't eat meat looked down on the people who did, and it was actually one of those things that you didn't want to bring up in church because people would fight over it. Paul comes along, and here's what Paul taught. He said, Christians are free to eat whatever kind of meat they want to eat. Uh, they can eat any meat, even meat offered to idols. He says, doesn't matter. You, eat, you can eat it. You're free. But this is what happened in the church. You had some people who ate meat and other people who didn't eat meat. But everyone liked to fight over it. They liked to argue over it. It just wasn't any different than the things that divide the church today. And people who ate meat looked down on the people who didn't, and they would say, those are people who are weak. They're weak in their faith. They can't just be free in Christ. This is the background to what Paul's talking about in Romans 15. In chapter 14, he puts it this way. As for the one who is weak in their faith, welcome that person. Welcome them into your, into your church. But not to quarrel. Don't welcome them into your church so you can fight with them and prove that it's okay to eat meat. One person believes he may uh, eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So let not the person who eats meat look down on the one who doesn't, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Oh, are you going to eat that? That's meat. Oh, right? No, don't do that. For God has, notice, for God has what? Welcomed him. God has welcomed her. God has welcomed them into the family of God. Who are you? to not welcome them. Who are you to not accept them? But the big issue that Paul gets to is this. The issue wasn't about food. The issue was about love. In Romans 15, 7 again, therefore welcome or accept one another as Christ has welcomed and accepted you for the glory of God. So he says, welcome as Christ has welcomed you. To welcome people requires us to embrace them as they are. There's no other way to welcome them. To welcome people requires that you welcome them as they are. Strong or weak, educated or ignorant, right or wrong, annoying, needy, beef eaters, you know, vegetarians. As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You see, when we welcome and accept believers who are different from us, 
when we welcome them into our circle of love, we are demonstrating the transforming power of God to take people who normally would not relate together and make them family. The implication of welcoming and accepting is this. It means that today, as in Romans 15 days, that we must work harder at embracing believers than dividing from them. That we must focus on what we have in common. What do we have in common? We have a common father. We have a common savior. We have a common cross and a resurrection and a Holy Spirit. Our culture today is increasingly focused on what separates us. You notice that? Our culture is always looking for ways to separate people. And it's always looking to be offended. In our culture, it's all about what I'm offended about. It's all about what you did that bothers me. It's all about what can divide us. The early church was known for the exact opposite. It was a group of people who under normal circumstances would never eat together, never spend time together, never sit in the same room together. But something had happened. Something had changed them. And they were family. And even though they were different, they loved each other. This was the legacy of the early church. So what do we do? We are to welcome and we welcome with grace. We are to welcome one another with grace. It's the only way to do it. Again, Romans 15, 7, therefore welcome one another, accept one another as Christ has welcomed and accepted you for the glory of God. So let me ask you, how did Jesus welcome you? How did Jesus accept you? Well, he did it by grace. It's an important word for us. Notice what it says here in Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. For by, notice, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast, no one can, no one can brag, no one can say, I'm better than you, I worked harder, I earned my salvation. God's acceptance of us, several things I want to note here. First of all, it's based on the work of Christ. This is the foundation of the grace of God. It's Christ who did the work on the cross. It's Christ who died. It's Christ who rose from the dead. It's Christ who makes righteousness available for us. The second thing is it says it comes to us through faith, that when you believe that God gives you grace, that God accepts you and welcomes you, but it's not based on anything you did. It's based on the work of Christ. And the third thing is this. It's a gift. He calls it grace. Grace simply means an unearned gift. It's all of God. Notice what is not in this passage. Notice that the only prerequisite here is the grace of God. That's it. But notice what is not on the list here. A, a certain level of perfection. God doesn't say, well, you know how you go to Disneyland and it's like you have to be this tall to get on the ride. There's no this tall thing. There's no this perfect thing. It doesn't say, well, you have to achieve a certain level of spiritual spirituality before God will let you in or you know you need to do a certain ritual or you need to earn it somehow. God's acceptance of us is by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone. It's by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone. So think there's many examples of, of how we could flesh this out but let's let's think of one example. Let's think of Peter. All right. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter's kind of mid-stride and, and hanging out with Jesus and being influenced by Jesus. And Jesus has a very interesting discussion with Peter. In Matthew 16, 13, it says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, 
He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Lots of people talking about Jesus, lots of opinions about who Jesus is. So he, he says, who are people saying that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist who had recently been beheaded. That'd have been weird. And uh, others say, you know, you're Elijah, the spirit of Elijah, or some say uh, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said, no, but how about you? Right? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter was quick to kind of jump and he jumps in and he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't figure this out on your own. It wasn't like you had a Bible study and you're like, oh, I just figured out who Jesus is. He says, but my father who is in heaven is who revealed it to you. So this is, this is something that God has revealed to him. It's revelation that he's given him. It's truth. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, now there's a lot of discussion about you know, what this rock is. I believe that the rock is the faith that, that Peter has. What he's saying is this, I'm going to build my church on this rock. And this rock is, is faith in Christ. Every time a person places their faith in Christ, they become like a, a building block in the family, in the church of God. And he says, I'm going to build my church upon this. Now, here's why I share this with you. Because I take this to mean at this point in the story that Peter is a believer. Now, I don't know when Peter became a believer, but I, I think he's one at this part in the story. He believes in his heart, and he's confessed with his mouth, and so I think he is a believer. But let's think about what kind of believer Peter is at this point, one who's been welcomed in by Jesus. Was his faith perfect? His faith was far from perfect, if you, if you know a little bit about Peter. We know that in the very near future, in the very near future, this man is professing that Jesus is the Son of the living God. We know that he will be sinfully proud. And we know that he will argue with other believers that he's better than they are. We know this is a man who is still very spiritually immature. We know this is a man who in the future will be impulsive. We know that he will actually rebuke Jesus when Jesus talks about going to the cross. And Jesus will say, get, get behind me, dude, <laughs> right? Get behind me, Satan, man. You're, setting your, you're not setting your thoughts on the things of God. We know this is a man who in the near future will deny even knowing Jesus three times or six times, depending on how you understand the gospel. Just, we'll just say, I don't know the guy. I don't know who he is. I don't know what you're talking about. And yet, think about this. Jesus has already accepted this man. He's accepted him with all of his issues. This is how we accept each other. We accept each other the way Christ has accepted us. It's not conditional and it's not based on performance. I mean, think about it this way. Right, for those of you who have children, when your toddler began to walk, when they took those first couple of steps, right, you might remember they, they took a step or two and then they fell down. Now, when they fell down, as a parent, what did you do? Did you like, woohoo, awesome, you know? Or did you break out a whiteboard, sit down with them and say, let's talk about where you got it wrong. Okay, so let me just chart with you a little bit about balance and, and posture. And let's talk about this and let's make a, you know, a chart here. Like when you take four steps or ten steps or when you walk across the living room, then we'll give you a thumbs up, right? We don't do that. Why don't we do that? Well, part of it's because of our relational paradigm. Right? We approach some people with a performance paradigm and some people with a grace paradigm. With a performance paradigm, what do we say? I'll accept you as long as you perform up to whatever standard I decide is the standard for today. What's a grace paradigm? None of that. I accept you as you are. I accept you as God has accepted me. We welcome 
by grace. And here's the third thing. We must be those like our Savior who welcome proactively. So God is a proactive welcomer. He always makes the first move. He is the one who created us. That's, that's the first move. He's the one who, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and hid from him, he made the move to find them. Right? When we were lost in our sin, God took the initiative and sent Jesus down here to seek us, to come after us. It was Jesus who proactively sought the disciples. He sought after people like the woman at the well and outcasts and the lost. He sought after the sick and the healthy. He sought after the educated and the uneducated. He, he sought the poor and he also sought the rich. He sought after the powerless and the powerful. He sought after women. He sought after men. He sought after Jew and Gentile and religious and, and irreligious. And I point this obvious thing out because I think part of human nature is that we tend to focus on our current relationships and avoid new ones. And I've, I've noticed this. And I've also noticed that as we get older, we tend to do this more and more. You would think that as we got older, we would become more embracing, but in fact, I often find that the exact opposite is true. But oftentimes, we focus on our current relationships at the expense of potential new ones. I mean, just think about greeting time today. Who did you talk with today? How much time did you spend talking with the people that you know and are comfortable with did you spend any time talking with somebody you didn't know? You didn't know their name. You hadn't seen them before. Why didn't you do that? Because we're more comfortable with the people we know and that's who we gravitate towards. At the office, at school, in your neighborhood, when inviting people into your homes. I think we, we find it difficult to welcome certain people into our relational world, to be proactive, as we say here. It's hard to be that way with people who don't share our interests. You know, it's, it's hard to do that with people who don't work like us or play like us or vote like us. You know, they don't speak our language. They don't understand our culture. They, they're in a different economic or social uh, status. We, we feel like, and I hear people tell me this sometimes, I don't have the time or the energy. But what we often don't have is the interest. We don't have the interest. We're not interested in getting to know other people. We're happy with the relationships that we have. And the danger is that over time, our relationships become more and more exclusive, not less exclusive. We become relationally ingrown. I see this in individuals. I see this in marriages. I see this in homes and in grow groups that can do this. I see this in churches that do this. And sometimes a lot of people say, I wish our church, you know, I wish there was more diversity. But what happens so often in churches today is, and I see this a lot, there's a lot of hurt, uh, church hopping or, or church shopping. What are we shopping for? A lot of times we're, we're shopping for a church where we feel the most comfortable. Why would that necessarily be the most important thing that we would look for in a church? Why is that so important? It's important because it's all about us. Rarely do I ever hear people say, you know, uh, we tried out Gateway and we were so uncomfortable that we know we have to stay here. <laughs> Nobody ever says that. No, we've got to go look for another church. This is uncomfortable for us. Sometimes I'll tell people, and that's why we need you. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 14. He's just kind of filling this out for us. He says this. When you give a dinner, you know, when you give a banquet at home, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, when you have a dinner party, invite the poor. Invite the crippled, the lame, the blind. The outcasts, the nerds, the geeks, right? And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. 
for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, Jesus is not saying, don't invite your friends to your home anymore. Tell your relatives, no more Thanksgiving at our house. We're only inviting the neighbors, all right? That's not what he's saying. You can obviously continue those relationships. He's just saying this, don't just do that. Don't just invite the people you already know, the people who can reciprocate. Anyone can do that. That's what he says later. Anyone can do that. Believers can do better than that. We can do better by including room in our lives for people who are not currently in our circle of relationships. Maybe it's the newcomer at church or at work or at school. Maybe it's people with a different skin color than us. Sometimes people <laughs> like that, be proactive. Do make that move. Maybe it's people in a different economic class than you. Maybe it's somebody who's, you know, kind of the oddball and, and, you know, you're just like, they're super quirky and, yeah, invite them to your house. Someone with a different personality or interest or background or social status, economic level, somebody who has different dietary convictions than you, right? You're like, oh, no, I won't be able to barbecue steak. Somebody with a different political affiliation. See, we avoid those people. But in the family of God, we're bigger than that. We're better than that. God is making us a family. The point is this, be like Jesus, who is a proactive welcomer. I mean, all the biblical stories of the Lord moving towards people are stories of grace. He pursued us not because we are worthy. He pursued us not because you know, we called out so well to him or we, or we took the first step of self-reformation. Right? We were simply sick enemies who needed him. And he loved us first. He loved us before we loved him. As Christians, we're to do that with each other. We're to be aggressive. We're to welcome. We're to accept. It's so vitally important that we are proactive. So I've shared this with you before, but when I was a freshman in high school, uh, I became a Christian. I'd never been to church. I'd never been in that context. And of course, as soon as I got saved, I, I remember thinking, I should go to church. But I didn't go to church. And the reason I didn't go to church was because at school, there was a bunch of Christians who would eat lunch together. And I loved those people, and I began to eat lunch with them. And, you know, they would do Bible studies together, and I felt very comfortable with them. But here's what I knew really quick. They're church people, and I'm not. I'm not a church person. I didn't know the lingo. I didn't know how to dress. I didn't have, all of their families went to church. My family didn't go to that church. I didn't know when to stand up and sit down and any of that. Here's what I knew. I knew I was an outsider. I knew it. And so I didn't go to church. And I would continue to have lunch with them at school and do Bible studies and they would continue to invite me. And I remember thinking, I'm not going. I'm not going because here's the one thing I know. I'm not a church person. And I, my fear was I would walk through those doors and I would just be a stranger and no one would talk to me and I would stand up at the wrong time and clap at the wrong time and all that stuff and I just didn't want to do that. But eventually, eventually they kept inviting me and they welcomed me to church. If they hadn't invited me to church, if they hadn't welcomed me in by grace, I wouldn't be in the church. I didn't have the power to work my way in the church. I needed help to get in the church. I needed someone to welcome me. If they, in fact, what I needed was someone to overcompensate for me, which they did. When I came in, they overcompensated for me. They, they, they looked for ways to include me. They would say, come sit with our family. They would give me cues on when it was time to stand up and when it was time to read from the hymnal and how to find a book in the Bible. They overcompensated. They welcomed me in by grace. They overlooked my spiritual immaturity and, and the fact that I didn't know the Bible and that I was doctrinally ignorant. But if they had not welcomed me in, 
I don't know how I would have gotten in. God is bringing people to our church. People who walk in the doors. It took a lot for them just to walk in the door and they don't know what to do once they get inside. And if we don't welcome them, they may never come back again. They need a spiritual family. So I want to make this real practical as we close. And on your notes on the back side, I've given you a couple things that you can do this week. And the first one may sound familiar. The first one is kneel down. It sounds familiar because uh, the first sermon I preached in this series, the first point was kneel down. And then the second week we had kneel down. And last week we had kneel down and we're having it again. It's almost as if there's something about prayer that's important. By kneel down, I mean pray. And what I mean is this, that on a daily basis you get on your knees. You physically get on your knees, bow down before God and tell God, you know what? I don't want to miss the opportunities to welcome and accept believers into my world today. And I know that I very may well miss it. So open my eyes. Help me to see people the way you see them. Help me to see how I can welcome people in. I'm going to church today, Father, and I know my tendency will be to walk in, say hi to people I know, get coffee with people I know, say hi to people I know on the way out. Open my eyes so I can be different today. So pray. Start with prayer. Here's the second thing. Just very simply, make room. So people tell me all the time, Pastor, I don't have any more room in my life for, um, for people I don't know. All right, so here's my advice. Make room, right? It's not rocket science. Make some room in your life for somebody else, for your circle of friends. Make some room in your schedule. Put an extra hour, block out an hour in your world this week. One hour, good baby step. One hour for somebody you don't know. Call them up, say hi, meet them at church, want to have coffee. Make room in your heart for them, right? That's the biggest problem. Usually we have no room in our heart for the people we don't know. Make some time in the, you know, make some room in the greeting time. So late now we're on the way out. You could be like, I'm out of here in four minutes. So I'll give two minutes to people I know and two minutes to people I don't know. Just a practical suggestion. After church at your dining room table, make some room for people in your world. Third thing. Fight, and fight first impressions. So first impressions can often keep us from getting to know some really great people because our first impressions of them are wrong. So here's a good example. When I fly, and I've, uh, over the last few years I've been flying a lot, when I fly, I always have the exact same thing that happens. I get on the plane, I get in my seat, we sit down, the plane takes off, and the person next to me turns and we begin to talk, and at some point they'll inevitably say, oh, what do you do for a living? And I'll say I'm a pastor. And you can almost hear the plane just like I sucked all of the oxygen out of the room. The person becomes very uncomfortable. Only one time it didn't happen. One time she asked me how to read Greek. But other than that, um, other than that, it was just like the conversation just stopped. Like they didn't talk to me at all. Or they just changed the, you know, just changed the discussion to something less full of tension like, politics or, you know, whatever. Um, but we can do this with people. First impressions. Oh, you're unemployed? Oh, right. Oh, you're rich? Mm. You live in what neighborhood? Oh, you're poor? Mm. Oh, you're a Republican? Mm. So you don't care about the poor. Yeah. Oh, you're a Democrat? Oh, so you're a tax and spend, you know, socialist. I know you, right? Oh, you're from Washougal? You must be refined and cultured. Yes, that's what we think. <laughs> Let me ask you, what uninformed first impression have you placed on people around you? Fourth thing, welcome without excusing. 
So it's possible that uh, as I've been preaching this morning, you've become increasingly uncomfortable with where we're going um, about all this accepting thing. So let me just say this and hopefully relieve a little bit of the tension you're feeling. God accepts us by his grace just as we are. Let's make that clear. God accepts us just as we are, but he doesn't leave us just as we are. God accepts us by his grace, but he is also dedicated to our sanctification. But let's just not get the, let's not get the order wrong. First God welcomes us and accepts us, and then God grows us and patiently makes us more and more like Jesus. So what I'm saying is this, we don't excuse the sin and the issues of others. We're not excusing it. That's why we want to practice all the one another's in this series. Admonish one another, correct one another, show tolerance, be patient with one another. Speak truth, truth with one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Confess your sins to one another. But here's the thing. We approach each other as God approaches us. We start with grace and mercy and patience and the goal of, of giving practical victory over sin. So again, God accepts us just as we are. But he doesn't leave us just as we are. But first he accepts us. All right. And the fifth thing. Welcome like it matters. Welcome like it makes a difference. Put your heart into this thing. In John 17, Jesus prayed this. I do not ask for these only. He's praying for his disciples. But I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one. So he's praying for us. That they may all be one. They may be unified just as you, Father, and me, and I and you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Welcome like it matters. I would suggest that it matters for two reasons. One, it matters to our community. We have a community that needs to see a church united and they are watching us. They're watching us to see if there's anything different in us at all or do we look just like the rest of the world. And secondly, welcome like it matters to the individuals that we meet. I'm gonna, we're gonna close with communion so I'm gonna ask uh, the gentleman at this point to kind of get up and they're gonna go back and grab the uh, bread and the cup and bring it up. And they're going to pass this out, but I want to do me a favor. As they bring communion forward, uh, I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm saying. Just hold on. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have trusted him, grab the bread and grab the cup as it comes by. Hold on to that, but stay focused. I want to read you a letter. So on Tuesday, I'm working on the sermon. Now, sermons often go this way. I start by looking at the passage, studying the passage, narrowing it down, getting some ideas, outline it, And then there's kind of crafting the whole sermon. Then I get down to like crafting paragraphs and then it's crafting sentences. And sometimes it's down to crafting words, like individual words. I I need to get this right. This was one of those weekends. It was a very intense week because I wanted to make sure I got this right because I knew there's going to be some people who are going to get really stressed out when I talk about accepting one another as God accepts us. And guys, you can go ahead and come forward and pass that out. Um, So I'm working on the sermon. It's Tuesday and an email pops up. So I just want you to realize I, I get the following email while I'm working on the sermon. I'm just, just kind of word by word. So grab the elements as they come by, but listen, listen to this. Here's an email I got while I'm working on this. Uh, Dear Pastor Bob, I grew up in a Baptist church from birth in Arizona. My parents were very active in the church and my dad was a deacon for years before having to move to Washington. When I was 18 years old and barely out of high school, I made some mistakes and I ended up pregnant at 18. In an effort to correct my mistakes, I wanted to get married in my church. The church I attended every week refused. 
They said that I would have to go in front of the entire congregation, confess my sin, ask their forgiveness in order to get married or even continue attending that church. Now my dad, being a deacon previously, met with the pastors, met with the board, and he fought for me. Fought for me not to be humiliated in front of the entire church. Trust me, I had some major personal moments with God, personally and, and privately. Sadly, they refused. They stuck to their rule, saying there would be gossip in the church, etc., if I didn't go in front of the church and apologize, confess, and ask for forgiveness. This act with the uh, church made me angry and probably would have made me stray from the church and to leave God's church. However, I knew this reaction wasn't normal since I grew up in the church. Another church let us get married after taking premarital classes and we got married and then your church, Gateway, heard of my situation from Pastor Bob who had recently moved to Gateway and Gateway surprised me with a baby shower to help a very young and scared girl with a baby coming soon. I have never forgotten what you did. I've never forgotten the generosity of your church. This is 25 years ago, by the way. I've never forgotten the generosity of your church and those ladies. It was a reassurance that the church was forgiving and not so judgmental like my other church. This is more important in my personal walk with God than I could ever possibly put into words. I didn't feel pushed away. I didn't feel rejected from everyone at Gateway. In fact, your church embraced and helped me when I needed it the most and when I was at my very worst. I ended up getting married, moved to North Carolina, and I maintained my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I just wanted to share my story and say thank you. I attended your church before moving and I currently live in, in Glendale, Arizona. My family and I currently attend a wonderful church, but I often think of Gateway and how instrumental it was in helping me not reject the church and help maintain my faith, so thank you. I now have four amazing kids that all have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what was interesting to me was that letter, like she could have sent that any time in 25 years. I love the fact that it came on Tuesday. I love it. It was amazing. And it was a reminder. Sometimes we just don't realize how welcoming and accepting someone can change the very course of their life. And this brings me to just my last thing I want to say, and that is I want to encourage you this week to play what I call the welcome card. The welcome card. So everyone's playing cards today in our society. Have you noticed that? Card playing is big. There's the race card. There's the gender card. There's the right, white privilege card. There's the inequity card. Have you noticed people just love to go around? I almost can't get on Facebook anymore because I'm so sick of people playing these cards all the time. But I want to encourage you to play a card this week. Play the welcome accepting card. Play it unapologetically. Look for every opportunity that you have and people around you to welcome them who are believers and to accept them as believers, not only into the church, but into your relational world because it makes a difference.